0: Hey, good morning, City Light Church. Good to see you guys. My name is Gavin. It's my joy to serve this church family as one of the pastors. And uh, each time we get a Saturday night, Sunday morning snow, which is every Sunday in 2019 so far, I think this is it. It's going to be just me and Willie this Sunday. Certainly, no one's driving in, and it makes me so thankful for hardy Nebraskans that are not scared off by a little snow. So thank you for getting here. Praise the Lord Jesus for four-wheel drive. And uh, let's get into it. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9 this morning, verses 9 through 13, so turn in there in your Bibles. It's going to be a fun morning as we unpack this really cool text, and uh, I want to preach a sermon that I have titled, Jesus's Unlikely Recruiting Class. Uh, Many of you saw last week, Scott Frost stepped up to the podium at a press conference and gave us an update on the 2019 recruiting class. So for those of you who follow football, you know that the success of a coach, of any team is not simply based on their leadership, their talent, their ability to call plays and have a healthy culture. So much of their success happens off-season in their ability to recruit and retain talent. And what I love about Scott Frost is he knows how to build a good team. He knows who he needs on his team. He knows how to get them. And he has a certain magnetism that makes young, talented players want to play for Scott Frost. Scott Frost knows how to recruit a good team. Now, many of you off the field, if you lead an organization, you lead a staff team, you own a business, you know that recruiting is not only important for a football team, but the success of any organization or any team. Who you select for your team shapes the vision, direction, DNA, culture of the team that you are leading. And so too, recruiting in an organizational business environment is extraordinarily important and cannot be overstated. Uh, This has been a learning curve for me just as a pastor of a local church, realizing how important recruiting a good and godly team is. Uh, Whenever we planted the church six years ago, Chris and I were not thinking about recruiting a team, staff-level leadership, and now, six years later, 50 people on the team, we've seen how important it is to have the right people in the right spot, and it's a lot of work, you guys. Uh, the Willies, the Camerons don't just show up and knock on the door and say, You got a guitar? Can I lead? I mean, it takes some work to recruit these people and cast vision and retain. Recruiting a team is so important in any context. And what we're going to see today in Matthew chapter 9, we're going to get a glimpse into Jesus' recruiting. Okay, Jesus has come to the earth. He's got a vision, a vision, and a mission that he is living out. And he's going to assemble a team of 12 men that are going to be his core team, his leadership team for the mission that he has come to live out. Now remember, back in chapter four, Chris preached it a few weeks ago. We caught the first glimpse into Jesus' first recruit. We saw Jesus recruit uh Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And today we're going to see him recruit another man named Matthew. Now, here's what's really interesting if you're tracking along with Matthew's gospel. It's really interesting that um, we got a lot of detail, a good amount of detail about the calling of of, uh, uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John back in chapter four. We're gonna get a lot of detail about Matthew here, but we really don't get a lot of detail about the other seven disciples. We don't know their background, their biographical details, the historical context of when Jesus approached them. It just doesn't show up. Additionally, what is interesting is why Matthew is singled out, and why he shows up on the scene where he does. This is interesting, because remember, we're in chapter nine now, so Jesus has already preached his most famous sermon. That's already in history before Matthew even comes on the scene. Jesus is two chapters into his miracle and healing and teaching ministry. And so you think, why? it it seems like, Team Jesus is already done with non-conference play. They're into their regular schedule, and all of a sudden, we're going to dedicate some five, six verses to zooming in on a transfer. Here comes another member to the team, and it's like, okay, Matthew, what are you trying to show us in your gospel? Here's what I think is going on. I think Jesus is now going to show us what he has already told us in his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Are you with me? Remember, the primary overarching thing on, on the, in the Sermon on the Mount was that Jesus was teaching that, hey, the, the, the pathway to heaven, the pathway to the Father is not through external moralistic religious rule keeping, but through faith and relationship with Jesus Christ. And now he's going to show us in, in his very intentional recruiting in a real man's life what this is going to look like. And so here's the one big idea that I think we're going to see uh, come to life out of Matthew chapter 9 and the calling of Matthew to be a disciple. That one big idea is this. Jesus invites unlikely disciples to live out an amazing mission and destroy man-made categories. Okay, that's our overarching big idea. As I walk through the text, I'm going to unpack that big idea one phrase at a time. So the first one is this, get your uh, note page in one hand, your Bible in the other. The first idea I want you to see is that Jesus invites unlikely disciples. Here's where we get this, chapter 9, verse 9. It starts off this way, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Okay, real quick, when we're first introduced to Matthew, where is Matthew at? He's in the tax booth. So we know his vocation. He is a tax collector. Now, those of you who are familiar with the cultural uh, temperature of the day were tax collectors, the local hometown heroes. No, these guys were, they were not well liked. Uh, So here's how tax collection worked in this day. Um, Israel, remember, was ruled over by an oppressive and godless government as a part of the Roman Empire. And the Romans loved to tax their citizens, right? And uh, so the way that a tax collector got his job is that Rome would put a region out to bid. They'd say, who wants to be a tax collector? Uh, next to the Sea of Galilee, and tax collectors would put forth a bid. I think I can get 20%. Well, I think I can do 30. Any takers? Do we have 40? 40? 50%? Okay, well, if you can get 40, you're our tax collector, and they would be put in charge of collecting taxes for a region. Now, when that guy wins his winning bid, he too needs to get paid. There needs to be profit margin, and that margin is found Uh, at the rate at which he's willing to increase the taxes to line his own pockets, okay? So you can see why the local representatives were not big fans of the tax collectors, right? Uh, What makes it worse in this particular case is that Matthew is Jewish by descent, ethnicity. He is culturally, he is religiously, he is uh, racially Jewish. And so he's essentially selling out his own people to an oppressive government and lining his own pockets in the process. So this time of year, we're not huge fans of the IRS, amen? I should be careful. This is going out to recording. I may get audited this year. Nothing to hide. But uh, so if you work for the IRS, God bless you. We love you. Just not the organization you look you work for, right? And so um, we already have a dislike for tax collection, maybe in general. But I want you to see that this is monumentally worse. This would be the equivalent of one IRS agent who single-handedly doubles your taxes, sends all the money to ISIS, and gets rich in the process. We would not be friends. Amen. That's not the guy you want to have. Over for supper. No one picked Matthew to be on their team. When they went out for intramural basketball, the pickup game over lunch, no one picked Matthew to be on their team. No one wanted to hang out with Matthew. Jesus picked Matthew. Jesus sees an outcast, a sinner, someone who's rebelled against his own people, and he says, you are perfect for my team. Matthew, come and follow me. Now, as a side note, you got to think about how this would um, affect the people that were already on the team. We learned eight verses earlier that Jesus has just gotten out of the boat in the Sea of Galilee. This is likely where Jesus, or where Matthew's tax booth was. He is at the boat docks, and he is likely taxing the fishermen as they come in to cash in on their daily catch. Now, do you remember back from chapter four, the occupations of Peter and Andrew and James and John? They were fishermen. So imagine the other guys on the team thinking, really? They knew Matthew. They knew Matthew very well. You're going to... Jesus, you're you're gonna pick him to be on our squad, right? This would be like if you're on a spelling bee team and your team captain picks Chris, right? You're like, hey, this affects all of us, by the way. Did you really have to pick him? This is not a popular pick. Matthew was a crook and a sellout and an aid to an oppressive government, and Jesus says, perfect, Matthew, you follow me. Jesus recruits an unlikely disciple, And what does Matthew do, by the way, as a side note? The main point I want you to see is the unlikely nature of his picking, but I also want you to see the way that he responds. Verse 9, it says, and he rose and followed him. So it's not only an amazing invitation, it's also an amazing response. He follows him. Now, real quick, commentators uh, disagree about maybe the level of interaction or relationship that Matthew and Jesus had up until this point. The Bible doesn't say explicitly, but we can infer, at least in my opinion, that Matthew has at least heard of Jesus, right? He's at the boat docks. This is where information and, and gossip travels. This is the proverbial Facebook of the first century, right there where people come and go, Jesus has already created a stir. He's had his sermon on the mount. He's healed some sick people. Uh, he, He really upset some pig farmers when he casted out demons, right? There's some buzz and some stir around this guy. So my assumption is Matthew's probably at least heard of him. We don't know the details, but what we do know is his response. It says he got up from his tax booth and he followed Jesus. It appears that there's immediate, it's called repentance and faith. He's going to leave his sinful lifestyle at the tax booth, and he's going to follow the itinerant preacher, Jesus Christ. It's absolutely amazing. Now, in our last point, I want to talk about why Matthew was so strategic, why he was such an important recruit to to Matthew's team. But what I don't want to miss is the application of our first point before we move on, which is this. Isn't it true, if we're honest with ourselves, that Matthew is but a picture of all of us who have trusted Jesus? Maybe not you, I will speak for myself. You guys are a little cold this morning. Get, get, get your coffee, warm up. I know that I can say this for sure, that there is no reason that an all-powerful, all-sufficient, eternal Lord God, King in Christ, would look down from his set heaven and say, Gavin Johnson, that's who I need on my team. He's the one that's really gonna push this movement, mission, and organization forward. You guys know from my last sermon, I painted three sides of my house two years ago and gave up, right? Right? <laughs> the the god who made the cosmos did not look down and say oh yeah that's the kind of talent character and competency that's really going to take this thing to the next level i need gavin on my team no 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 jesus picked me because of grace i wasn't special or deserving but jesus was gracious and forgiving This is what 1 Corinthians says, chapter 1, verse 26, I would ask it to you. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God didn't pick us because we were lovely, it's because he's lovable. He didn't pick us because we were special, but because he is gracious. And I just want to humbly put before you a reminder that if you have come to know, love, follow, worship Jesus Christ, it's not because you passed an entrance exam, it's not because you made it through a tryout, it's not that you got recruited for your character or your holiness, it's not that you memorized enough verses to get in, it's by grace. We are all Matthews, unlikely disciples. Jesus picks the unlikely disciples. And as a side note, just as a a cultural um, point, this is one of the reasons we want to strive for a culture of joy and celebration at City Light Church. It's not because we want to put up a facade of evangelical happiness where we pretend that there are no problems in our lives or in the world and we're going to be happy for Jesus. No, no, no. The gospel frees us to engage that things are difficult, things are hard, things are complicated, but we're just going to choose to always remember that we were, Matthew, sitting in a tax booth of our sin when the God of the universe came and invited us onto his team by grace. And even though circumstances might be hard, we're going to choose to rejoice because we're on a team that we never deserve to be on. Amen. We are the Matthews and the unlikely disciples, so we are going to rejoice in that. Here's the second point I want to to point out. Jesus invites unlikely disciples, and he invites us to live out an amazing mission. He invites us onto his missionary team. Look at verse 10. The very next verse, verse after Jesus calls Matthew, we see this. It says, And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, Matthew words this kind of funny. If you have your Bibles, look at it. I don't know if we got nine next to ten there, but it, I'll read back. And Jesus passed from there. He sees Matthew. He says, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Verse 10, and Jesus reclined at table in the house. Behold, tax collectors and sinners came. What, what we don't see is what happens in the transition here. And what we don't learn is what's the house? Whose house are we at? Well, thank God we also have Mark and Luke, the other gospels that tell the same story and they give a little more detail. It says that they went to Matthew's house, they're actually in Matthew's house. And I've wondered why Matthew doesn't include it. And I can't help but wonder if it's maybe he's not just being humble because it's Matthew that wrote this book that we're reading. He is the author retelling the story. But Mark and Luke aren't so shy about the details. They said, no, he went to Matthew's house. And Luke goes on to say that he prepared a great feast. And so he's not only opened up his home, he went to Costco, he got burgers for the grill. He's got drinks and colorly. He, 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 he actually bleached out the toilets. He's throwing a big party. He's hosting all of his friends into his house. And I love the picture that we see here. He's been a follower of Jesus for a matter of moments. It seems immediate in the text, and he's already inviting his friends over to meet Jesus. See, he's left his sinful lifestyle behind, but he doesn't leave his old friends behind. He's met Jesus, and he now knows that he is the very best person to introduce his friends to the Jesus that he met. He starts a city group. He opens his home, I love this. Matthew, the notorious, cheap, greedy criminal, is now Matthew, the missionary city group leader. I love that Jesus Christ loves to take nobodies from nowhere and use them to tell everybody about the great somebody, Jesus Christ. What a mission. And it happens immediately. That's Matthew. He's met Jesus, and now he wants everyone to meet Jesus. And he throws a big party. He has um, everyone over and I want you to notice from the text, this is probably not like your um, neat and tidy evangelical, let's circle up in, in a Bible study format and have a party. Like, let's play catchphrase. You know, this is not, no catchphrase at this party. Okay, verse 10 goes out of the way to say that this party is filled with sinners and tax collectors. Now, that is Bible speak. That's New Testament speak. It's a junk drawer term for all of the moral outliers of the culture. When someone heard, sinners and tax collectors, there was a whole group of people that came into their mind's eye, okay? These are not the front row pew sitters. These are. This is the guy who spends his entire pension check uh, at the boats, drinks too many bush lights, and doesn't get out of bed on Sunday. This is the gal who makes her money in provocative ways that are frowned upon. This is the middle-aged mom who sips vodka all day out of her cubicle, hiding in guilt and shame. These are the people that walk around knowing, no, I'm not, I'm not like on the good team. I'm I'm on the bad team. This is a motley crew of people, sinners and tax collectors. Probably a lot of neck tattoos and Wayne State t-shirts. I mean, that kind of crowd. You with me? Wayne, America. God bless Wayne. Um, But that's Matthew's city group. That's his friends. That's the people that he has over, and he makes this big meal for them. And as a side note, can I point out, it's expensive to host a big dinner party. For those of you who have done it, you just know There's a lot of labor, there's a lot of food to buy, it just adds up. And I love that we're already seeing a picture of the heart change in Matthew. Here is Matthew who is willing to sell out his friends to get money. And now he's spending money to invest in his friends. Do you see the heart change immediately? He was met by the generous grace of Jesus and it's already started to turn his heart of greed into a heart of generosity. That's absolutely amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Matthew has reprioritized his dollars, his relationship, his pantry, his home around the amazing mission of Jesus Christ. And you get the impression here that that Matthew is not doing a have to, but a get to, right? You just see that his heart of hospitality to have all of his buddies in. He's excited to be a part of a mission that is greater than himself, greater than getting rich, greater than serving Caesar. He is now on team Jesus serving as a missionary, and he loves it. Verse 11, I want you guys to see this. This is a picture of the scattered church. Think of it this way, the the tax collectors and sinners were not gonna come to the temple on Saturday morning to go to adult Saturday school and learn about Yahweh, okay? These were not the good church-going people, so they weren't ready to receive an invitation to church. What they needed was the church to come to them. Do you see it? And that's what Matthew does. They don't need to come to church. Matthew is the church. He's going to invite his friends over, and he's going to invite Jesus, and they're going to meet around his dining room table. That is an absolute picture of the scattered church. And I want you to know this is the whole like discipleship strategy of City Light, by the way. Did you know that's why we talk about gather and scatter, Sundays and city groups? From day one, we've just said we want to keep it really simple. We want to gather on Sunday morning for the preaching of God's word, for the singing of the saints, and then we want to scatter into our homes, into our neighborhoods for community and mission. We want to open up our homes, open up our tables, open up our pantries, open up our lives so that we can open up doors for our lost friends and neighbors to come meet, love, follow, worship Jesus Christ. This is what we do for city groups. And I have to let you know, don't, don't tell the other people in the church, but I'll tell you because I feel like we're close um, in this room. You can smile. It's going to be okay. Um, I love Sunday mornings. I love preaching the word of God. I love the gathered church church. But I have to say, my heart is probably even more entrenched in a scattered church in my neighborhood. Can I just say that? Not to diminish what we do here. This is so important. It will never go away. God's church is gathered. We are the assembly. We meet on Sunday because Jesus rose on a Sunday. But there's something pure in my heart when I can eat a meal with my neighbor, when we can take a prayer walk around our neighborhood and we can pray for people that we know, that we see six days a week. Their children are in my home. Mine are in their home. We, we share chores. They're going to get our mail when we go out of town. We eat meals together. There's something pure-hearted about that mission where I just long for Jesus to meet these people and for them to meet Jesus. And I have loved our city group that meets in our neighborhood. Once a month, we do a big potluck. We put on the next door app. We invite everyone who will come. There's always lots of bacon at this big party. And we have 40, 50, 60 people show up. And it feels like Matthew's table. A lot of these people, they don't know how to spell the word church but they know how to spell bacon. And so they show up and we have a big old party in our house and I curse it a little bit as they leave because I have to get the smashed blueberries out of the carpet because people are not a parent and all the cookies that are mashed in. But, but it's this constant reminder that my, my house is not my proverbial heaven that I'm dwelling in until Jesus calls me to the real heaven. It's a place of hospitality. It's a place of mission. It's a gift that God has given me to leverage for his name, fame, and glory until I go to my true home. It's not my home. It's a missionary tool. And then the next week, we get together for a Bible study. We have people who are coming who would never come on a Sunday. One of my neighbors went to Costco and bought a Bible for the first time in his life. And he started in Genesis, and I think he tuckered out somewhere in Leviticus, but he's reading the word of God. And it doesn't happen unless we have Matthew's table in our neighborhood. He wasn't coming here, but we went to him. have another neighbor bought a Bible off Amazon, Says the first time I've touched a Bible since 1985 when I went to Creighton. I love it. These are people, these are are Matthew's sinners and tax collectors peeking in. What's, What's the hype about this Jesus guy? And I got to brag about my my neighbors, the Eulers and the Johnsons. We don't do this mission alone. Uh, When we first moved into the neighborhood three years ago, we started a little Bible study, made some friends. They started coming into our home. They quickly caught a fire for Jesus. I got to baptize my neighbor, Brian. And now they are way better missionaries in our neighborhood than we are. I think there's something like Matthew, it's so new for them, it's so fresh, there's such an urgency to the mission and gospel of Jesus Christ, there's such an urgency for them to tell their stories that they are way better as missionaries in our neighborhood than we are and uh, it's just been invigorating. It's so fun to have lost neighbors come to meet Jesus. Neighbors that were strangers become dear friends in our lives. And I'd say all that to cast a picture of what Matthew is doing and what we're trying to do as a church family, to gather as the church and to scatter as the church. And so I want to invite you guys, if you have not, this is going to sound cheesy, like a little commercial about city groups, but I want to genuinely invite you guys in. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is our whole strategy as a church. And uh, this morning, is the. The last Sunday of group launch, that means we have eight new city groups that we are launching next week. And so if you haven't jumped into one, uh, would you jump into one? So what we've learned so far, Jesus invites unlikely disciples. What does he invite them into? He invites them into an amazing mission. Here's the third truth that I want you to see uh, out of this text. Uh, he invites them into an amazing mission to destroy man-made categories, to destroy man-made categories. So as the party goes on, we're going to learn in the next verse that there's some party crashers, okay? There's some people that are peeking in. They've lifted the shade. They said, what is this party going on right here? And we're going to learn that they're not fans. They are critics. And so go to 9 and verse 11. We're two verses in, and I'm 23 minutes. How about that? Verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. Okay, really quick. This is not a sincere question, birthed out of curiosity. They're not. They're, they're not sincerely asking. This is Pharisaical criticism. Right? And they come to the disciples, and they're criticizing the disciple's teacher, which is the rabbi Jesus. Now, a real quick comment on this group of people known as the Pharisees. We've already seen uh, that they're going to come against Jesus throughout the gospel. Uh, but here's what we know about the Pharisees. They were a very devout, very religious group of people, and they also had teachers. Their teachers were known as the scribes. So the Pharisees were sort of the common class. They were very devout, very religious. Their teachers were the scribes who were the educators class. And so these were the mentors. These were the senseis. All the Pharisees would ascribe to a scribe and follow their teaching. Now the scribes were, um, these guys, they were like geeks for gods, okay? These, these were the people that left footnotes and long words and words that you can't pronounce, and they were very pious. And they loved to take the rules in the Bible, and they would add rules to those rules to make sure that you didn't break these rules. Are you with me? Like there's a fence in the backyard and we're going to put another fence around that fence and then we're going to build a wall next to that. No political connotations implied. And then we're going to build another wall around that and then a force field until everyone's walking around like this to make sure they don't accidentally sin or get within three fences. And so all that to say the Pharisees had teachers and they didn't hang out with tax collectors and sinners. Are you with me? And so they come to the disciples and say, why does your teacher hang out with this riffraff? Now, I love that Jesus hears this, and he doesn't even let his disciples answer it. He's actually going to answer for them. We're going to see him chime in in verse 11. It says, and when the Pharisees saw, no, verse 12, but when he heard it, that's Jesus, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick Go and learn what this means. Here he's quoting from the Old Testament, Hosea 6.6. 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I love Jesus' response here. It's brilliant. Notice that Jesus doesn't deny that he's hanging out with sinners. Notice that he doesn't deny their sin. He affirms their sin. Yeah, I'm hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. But then he uses the analogy of a physician and says, yeah, I'm hanging out with sick people because I'm a doctor. That's what I do. If you saw a doctor surrounded by sick people, you wouldn't say, that's a terrible doctor. How dare he? You would say, oh, he's doing his job. If a doctor is never around sick people, he is an incompetent doctor, amen? Amen. She's saying, listen, I am a physician. These people are sick, and this is my mission statement. I came as a healer. I came as a physician. They are sick with sin, and I've come to forgive them, transform them, and renew them, and make them healthy and whole again. But the Pharisees don't see it. Their mindset is completely different. They say, they're sick people. Let's quarantine ourselves they don't understand they're infected with the same thing. They say, there's the bad people. Let's stay over here with the good people. See, we've got good teachers that teach us good things, and your teacher is a bad teacher who who teaches bad things. And I love how Jesus fires back, by the way, Um, after his little doctor analogy. He actually fires a shot back. I don't know. It's almost comedic, the dialogue that's happening here, and you don't catch it unless you slow down and really, really look at it. Remember, The Pharisees' questions was, why does your teacher hang out with sinners and tax collectors? And Jesus' reply is, go and learn what this means, and then he quotes an Old Testament scripture, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What Jesus is saying, the Pharisees say, why doesn't your teacher, or why does your teacher hang out with tax collectors and sinners? What Jesus is essentially saying, why don't your teachers understand the Bible, This would have been a huge shot. They were the Bible experts, right? Go and learn what this means implies you don't understand what it means. So go open up the book that you hold in such high regard and explain to me this verse, which you clearly don't understand. God loves mercy, not sacrifice. He's saying, you don't know your Bibles. Your teachers don't know how to teach because they've taught you to hide from sinners when God says, I love mercy, not sacrifice. He's saying, go and learn that God is a God of mercy, that you are someone who needed mercy. God loves to show you mercy and God loves to give mercy through you, not to quarantine yourself, but to move toward those who need mercy. But the Pharisees don't see it. They just don't see it. And what Jesus is trying to do here is he is trying to destroy all of their categories, He's showing them and through scripture us that there's not two camps of people in this world, bad people and good people, rebels and church kids, Caleb and Power 106.9 listeners, right? He's saying, no, no, there's one group of people, those who are infected by sin, and there's one great physician, Jesus Christ, and he comes to heal any who's willing to bow their knees, admit their disease, and receive the free grace, forgiveness, and healing of Jesus Christ. The Pharisees just don't see that they're sick too. That's the difference, right? Why do you hang out with these people? She's saying, "Well, yeah, you don't see. You just don't see it, do you? See, they're they're addicted to alcohol, but you're addicted to self righteousness, aren't you? Hmm. Okay. Oh, they're addicted to pornography, but but you're addicted to judging other people. So looks like you're both sick, aren't you? They're addicted to going to the boats and, and spending all their pension, but you're addicted to bragging on your perfect kids and judging other people, aren't you? And so. What if maybe you're both sick, and what if I'm the physician that came for both them and for you? He's destroying all of our categories, destroying all of our categories. We're all sick with sin, but Jesus came to heal us and to make us new. I want to press this in by way of application in a few ways. Number one, I got to say this. Maybe it's the most clear in the text. Um, If you are someone who would identify with Matthew... Maybe you would self-identify and say, no, I would be right at home at Matthew's dinner table. I mean, that's kind of where I've lived most of my life. I am a sinner, a tax collector. If God's got 10 commandments, I probably broke 13 or 14 of them. I'm just just not even, I know I'm not going to get in on that track, and I'm out of the camp if it's by morality. If that's you, what I want you to see in today's text is such a gracious invitation. Jesus doesn't just tolerate Matthew. He singles him out among all the people and gives him a personal invitation. He could have picked from any of the men, women, and children that had followed him. Notice that Matthew wasn't even following him. He wasn't even a fan. He was still sitting in his sin. He was in the tax booth sinning, and Jesus said, you, Matthew, come and follow me. Jesus doesn't just tolerate you. He wants you. He welcomes you, and he personally invites you. How does he do it today? He does it through the Spirit of God drawing your heart. So even in this moment, if you feel the prompting, the the pulling, the invitation of Jesus Christ, would you not harden your heart, but would you say, yes, Jesus? And would you respond like Matthew? Get up out of your sin and out of your tax booth. It's killing you. You're isolated. You're lonely. You're chasing everything you thought would fulfill you, and it's left you empty just like Matthew. Jesus offers you something so much better. Would you come and follow him? Would you turn from your sin and would you trust him? Second group of people I want to press into, maybe more the majority in this room, I most identify with the Pharisees in this, if I can just self-disclose my own dark heart. My tendency is to be a rule keeper. I tend to want to obey the rules. I tend to think I'm not as bad as I really am. And so I want to speak to those of you in the room that are like me. If you're generally a good person, if, you, if you're in a city group, you give money, you know verses, you don't break the rules, you didn't speed to get here, uh, the invitation of this text is, is the same for you, but there's sort of a, a qualifier. There's a first step for those of us Pharisees in the room. The first step is that we first need to admit that we are no different than Matthew or his rough friends at the dinner table. And we first need to humbly submit, oh, no, I am sick. I might be a good person, but I'm not good enough. Against a holy, righteous, perfect, heavenly Father, I am on equal footing with every other sinner who has ever rebelled against God. And I need, not my morality, I need the great physician. But then the invitation is the same, come freely. Whoever would come, come. The invitation of Jesus is to humble yourself, let go of your religious resume, and come in through the one gate to the Father, which is Jesus Christ. It's the same gate for the rebel and the religious. Amen, it's just Jesus Christ. And if you've already done that, for us Pharisees in the room, would that always keep us humble and happy? Humble and happy. Would it keep us away from religious pride, arrogance, or judgmentalism that we are the Matthews that God has saved by grace? And then finally, if I could just preach some vision into our church, the DNA that that we are called to be. Do you know our name is City Light because Jesus invites us in Matthew 5 to be a city on a hill and a light to the world? Okay, I think an additional good name for our church would have been Matthew's Table. In fact, if you ever fire me and I have to plant another church, I might call it Matthew's Table because this is who we are called to be as a church, a table with sinners and tax collectors that are meeting with Jesus and being transformed. And so I wanna say this, if, if City Light Church ever fails to be a place where sick sinners can come and meet with the great physician Jesus, would you commit with me to just shutting this thing down? I don't know how we'll do it, but figure out a way to fire me. Let's burn the building down. Let's get out of here because Jesus is no longer here as soon as we are no longer a welcoming place for sinners. When we become a country club for good religious moral people, Jesus will no longer be here because where is Jesus? Well, we learn in Matthew 9. He's with the Matthews of the world around the table, healing the sick and forgiving the sinners. And so would that be true of us? Would we never become a place for the good people to quarantine ourselves from the sick people of the culture. We are God's missionary team to the world. It's called the local church. And so would that always be our aim, our mission, and our passion as long as there is a City Light Church? Jesus invites unlikely disciples to live an amazing mission and destroy all of man-made categories. I don't know how God would have you respond this morning, but I do want to take just a minute before we go into communion. And uh, it's not my notes, but I, I just want to say, If the Spirit of God has pressed on you this morning, it could be in an area of mission, an area of repentance. If there's a lost friend or neighbor that God has stirred your heart toward this morning, would you take a moment and just, in your heart of hearts, let Jesus come in and move you to application there? Would you just tell Jesus, even in your heart, even in your mind, Jesus, I'm teachable. I want to learn from you. I want to grow. Would you help me to take that next step? Maybe there's a Matthew that needs to come to know Jesus. Maybe you are the Matthew that started to think you were a little bit more like a Pharisee and the Spirit of God just wants to humble you. Maybe you've been busy and thought, I don't have time for a city group, or there's too much, maybe God would press into you there. But would you be supple clay in the hands of our Father who wants to shape you to look more like him? And now we do want to respond with communion, because in communion we We're reminded that before Jesus ever sent us on mission, he was the first missionary who left the comforts of heaven to come on mission for us, that we were Matthew. And if Jesus didn't follow the command of his father to come, we would still be in our booths. But praise God, the one true missionary, Jesus Christ came to save, to redeem, and to renew. And he gives us this meal of communion to remind us the great cost of his missionary endeavor. It cost him everything, his very body and his very blood. And so our instructions for communion are this. It says in 1 Corinthians 11 that our Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is for you. This is in the same way also after supper, he took the cup and he gave it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. And so we're reminded that this is a meal, number one, of remembrance. We remember our great missionary Jesus and the price that he gave. And it's a meal of proclamation, a meal of declaration, that until Jesus comes again, I am safe in him. I am forgiven in him, and that I am on mission for him until he completes the mission and calls us to our ultimate home. And so I'm going to invite the communion servers forward. If you're new to the church, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are welcome. No matter your denominational spiritual background, the only requirement is that you recognize that you are a sinner like Matthew, and that you come by grace, undeserving, if you 're not a follower of Jesus, this meal isn't for you, we 'd invite you to reflect on your sin. Is this real? Do I need Jesus and what I trust him today? Uh, if you need any prayer in this time i 'm going to be in the back a number of prayer volunteers. We would love to just invite God to work in your heart. If you need healing. Um, I prayed with two or three people that lost their job this week, from UP, from other organizations. there's real stuff. Can we just go to the Father together? Can we pray? Maybe you need healing? Maybe you need a new fresh wave of. God's grace. Whatever it is, we'd love to pray with you in the back. Uh, there's no ushers. Uh, we're going to stand seeing you come forward whenever you're ready. Uh, the servers will break the bread for you. You dip it in the juice, partake that way. any food allergies, you go in the back. So why don't you guys stand and let me pray. God, is humbling to read this text because we see in Matthew a picture of ourselves. I see a picture of Gavin, Gavin in his tax booth, caring about Gavin, serving Gavin, looking out for Gavin, self-absorbed, self-interested, self-gratifying, and here comes Jesus, the righteous one, and he says, Gavin, come and follow me. Oh, God, there is nothing I have ever done that would deserve that kind of attention, that kind of invitation. And yet, God, as we look to you, we just realize you're a gracious God. We're not great, you're just so gracious We're not so lovely, but you are so loving that you would come to sinners undeserving, a Matthew, a Gavin, all of us, of all people, and say, come and be my children. Oh, God, what great grace you have for us. What great love. Unlike anything we have felt, seen, or experienced in this world, we have found in you. God, I pray this time of communion would be a great reminder of that, that it would be a humbling time as we remind that our sin necessitated the death of the Son of God but that the love of God was so willing that he poured it out freely. And so God, would it be reinvigorating? Would it renew our faith? Would it send us out in mission to count the cost once again and say, my life doesn't belong to me, it belongs to you, and it was paid for at a great price. So uh, God, move and stir in us in this time of ministry. In Jesus' name, amen.